Chapter 12, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 12, Part 1 Further Imaginative Lives of Jesus. Bibliography Charles Christian Henel. An Inquiry Concerning the Origin of Christianity, 1840, with a preface by David Friedrich Strauss, English edition, 1838. Important Discourses Concerning the Manner of Jesus' Death, from an ancient manuscript found at Alexandria, written by a contemporary of Jesus, belonging to the Sacred Order of the Essenes, 1849, 5th edition, Leipzig. Historical Discourses Concerning the Real Circumstances of the Birth and Youth of Jesus, a continuation of the ancient Essene manuscript discovered at Alexandria, 1849, 2nd edition, Leipzig. August Friedrich Gofrorer, Critical History of Primitive Christianity, Volume 1, 1st edition, 1831, 2nd, 1835, Part 1, 543 pages, Part 2, 406 pages, Volume 2, 1838, Part 1, 452 pages, Part 2, 417 pages. Richard von der Alm, pseudonym of Friedrich Wilhelm Gilhani, Theological Letters to the Cultured Classes of the German People, 1863, Volume 1, 929 pages, Volume 2, 656 pages, Volume 3, 802 pages. Ludwig Noack, The History of Jesus on the Basis of a Free Historical Inquiry Regarding the Gospel and the Gospels. Second edition, 1876, Mannheim. Book 1, 251 pages. Book 2, 187 pages. Book 3, 386 pages. Book 4, 285 pages. Strauss can hardly be said to have done himself honor by contributing a preface to the translation of Hennel's work, which is nothing more than Venturini's non-miraculous history of the great prophet of Nazareth, tricked out with a fantastic paraphernalia of learning. Footnote. Hennel, a London merchant, withdrew himself from his business pursuits for two years in order to make the preparatory studies for this life of Jesus. He is best known as a friend of George Eliot, who was greatly interested and influenced by the inquiry. To the same category as Hennel's work belongs the An Account of the Life of Jesus Based on the Closest Examination of the Heidelberg mathematician Karl von Langsdorff. End footnote. The two series of important discourses also are really conveyed with no particular ability from that classic romance of the life of Jesus, but that did not prevent their making something of a sensation at the time when they appeared. Footnote. Haza seems not to have recognized that the discourses were merely a plagiarism from Venturini. He mentions them in connection with Bruno Bauer and appears to make him responsible for inspiring them. At least that is suggested by his formula of transition when he says, quote, It was primarily to him that the frivolous apocryphal hypotheses attached themselves. Close quote. 
This is quite inaccurate. The anonymous epitomist of Venturini had nothing to do with Bauer, and had probably not read a line of his work. Venturini, whom he had read, he does not name. End footnote. Jesus, according to his narrative, was the son of a member of the Essene order. The child was watched over by the order and prepared for his future mission. He entered on his public ministry as a tool of the Essenes, who, after the crucifixion, took him down from the cross and resuscitated him. These discourses only preserve the more external features of Venturini's representation. His life of Jesus had been more than a mere romance. It had been an imaginative solution of problems which he had intuitively perceived. It may be regarded as the forerunner of rationalistic criticism. The problems which Venturini had intuitively perceived were not solved either by the rationalists or by Strauss or by Weisse. These writers had not succeeded in providing that of which Venturini had dreamed, a living purposeful connection between the events of the life of Jesus, or in explaining his person and work as having a relation, either positive or negative, to the circumstances of late Judaism. Venturini's plan, however fantastic, connects the life of Jesus with Jewish history and contemporary thought much more closely than any other life of Jesus, for that connection is of course vital to the plot of the romance. In Weiss's Gospel History, criticism had deliberately renounced the attempt to explain Jesus directly from Judaism, finding itself unable to establish any connection between his teachings and contemporary Jewish ideas. The way was therefore once more open to the imagination. Accordingly, several imaginative lives preluded a new era in the study of the subject, insofar as they endeavored to understand Jesus on the basis of purely Jewish ideas, in some cases as affirming these, in others as opposing them in favor of a more spiritual conception. In Gefrorer, Richard von der Alm, and Noack begins the skirmishing preparatory to the future battle over eschatology. Footnote. One of the most ingenious of the followers of Venturini was the French Jew Salvatore. In his Jesus Christ et sa Doctrine, from Paris, two volumes, 1838, he seeks to prove that Jesus was the last representative of a mysticism which, drawing its nutriment from the other Oriental religions, was to be traced among the Jews from the time of Solomon onwards. In Jesus, this mysticism allied itself with messianic enthusiasm. After he had lost consciousness upon the cross, he was succored by Joseph of Arimathea and Pilate's wife, contrary to his own expectation and purpose. He ended his days among the Essenes. Salvatore looks to a spiritualized mystical mosaism as destined to be the successful rival of Christianity. End footnote. August Friedrich Gefrorer, born in 1803 at Kahl, was repetent at the Tübingen Theological Seminary at the time when Strauss was studying there. After being curate at the principal church in Stuttgart for a year, he gave up, in 1830, the clerical profession in order to devote himself wholly to his critical studies. By that time he had abandoned Christianity. 
In the preface to the first edition of the first volume of his work, he describes Christianity as a system which now only maintains itself by the force of custom, after having commended itself to antiquity, quote, by the hope of the mystic kingdom of the future world, and having ruled the Middle Ages by the fear of the same future. Close quote. By enunciating this view, he has made an end, he thinks, of all high-flying Hegelian ideas, and being thus freed from all speculative prejudices, he feels himself in a position to approach his task from a purely historical standpoint, with a view to showing how much of Christianity is the creation of one exceptional personality, and how much belongs to the time in which it arose. In the first volume, he describes how the transformation of Jewish theology in Alexandria reacted upon Palestinian theology, and how it came to its climax in Philo. The great Alexandrian anticipated, according to Gefror, the ideas of Paul. His therapeutae are identical with the Essenes. At the same period, Judea was kept in a ferment by a series of risings, to all of which the incentive was found in messianic expectations. Then Jesus appeared. The three points to be investigated in his history are what end he had in view, why he died, and what modifications his work underwent at the hands of the apostles. The second volume, entitled The Sacred Legend, does not, however, carry out this plan. The works of Strauss and Weisse necessitated a new method of treatment. The fame of Strauss's achievement stirred Gefor to emulation, and Weisse, with his priority of Mark and rejection of John, must be refuted. The work is, therefore, almost a polemic against Weisse for his, quote, want of historic sense, close quote, and ends in setting up views which had not entered into Gefforer's mind at the time when he wrote his first volume. The statements of Papias regarding the synoptists, which Weisse followed, are not deserving of credence. For a whole generation and more, the tradition about Jesus had passed from mouth to mouth, and it had absorbed much that was legendary. Luke was the first, as his preface shows, who checked that process, and undertook to separate what was genuine from what was not. He is the most trustworthy of the evangelists, for he keeps closely to his sources, and adds nothing of his own, in contrast to Matthew, who, writing at a later date, used sources of less value, and invented matter of his own, which Gefrorer finds especially in the story of the Passion, in this gospel. The lateness of Matthew is also evident, from his tendency to carry over the Old Testament into the New. In Luke, on the other hand, the sources are so conscientiously treated that Gefrorer finds no difficulty in analyzing the narrative into its component parts, especially as he always has a purely instinctive feeling, quote, whenever a different wind begins to blow, close quote. Both Gospels, however, were written long after the destruction of the Holy City, since they do not draw their material from the Jerusalem tradition, but, quote, from the Christian legends which had grown up in the neighborhood of the Sea of Tiberias, and in consequence mistakenly transferred the scene of Jesus' ministry to Galilee, close quote. 
For this reason, it is not surprising, quote, that even down into the second century, many Christians had doubts about the truth of the synoptics and ventured to express their doubts, close quote. Such doubts only ceased when the church became firmly established and began to use its authority to suppress the objections of individuals. Mark is the earliest witness to doubts within the primitive Christian community regarding the credibility of his predecessors. Luke and Matthew are for him not yet sacred books. He desires to reconcile their inconsistencies and at the same time to produce, quote, a gospel composed of materials of which the authenticity could be maintained even against the doubters. For this reason, he omits most of the discourses, ignores the birth story, and of the miracles retains only those which were most deeply embedded in the tradition. His gospel was probably produced between 110 and 120. The non-genuine conclusion was a later addition but by the evangelist himself. Thus, Mark proves that the synoptists contain legendary matter even though they are separated from the events which they relate only by a generation and a half, or at most two generations. To show that there is nothing strange in this, Gaffroer gives a long catalogue of miracles found in historians who were contemporaries of the events which they describe, and in some cases were concerned in them. In this connection, Cortes affords him a rich storehouse of material. On the other hand, all objections against the genuineness of the fourth gospel collapse miserably. It is true that, like the others, it offers no historically accurate report of the discourses of Jesus. It pictures him as the Logos Christ and makes him speak in this character, which Jesus certainly did not do. Inadvertently, the author makes John the Baptist speak in the same way. That does not matter, however, for the historical conditions are rightly represented. Rightly, because Jerusalem was the scene of a greater part of his ministry, and the five Johannine miracles are to be retained. The healing of the nobleman's son, that of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and that of the man blind from birth happened just as they are told. The story of the miracle at Cana rests on a misunderstanding, for the wine which Jesus provided was really the wedding gift which he had brought with him. In the raising of Lazarus, a real case of apparent death is combined with a polemical exaggeration of it, the restoration to life becoming, in the course of controversy with the Jews, an actual resurrection. Having thus won free, dragging John along with him, from the toils of the Hegelian denial of miracle, only it is true by the aid of Venturini, and being prepared to explain the feeding of the multitude on the most commonplace rationalistic lines, he may well boast that he has, quote, driven the doubt concerning the fourth gospel into a very small corner, close quote. Cries Gefroer, quote, The miserable era of negation is now at an end, Affirmation begins. We are ascending the eastern mountains from which the pure airs of heaven breathe upon the spirit. Our guide shall be historical mathematics, a science which is as yet known to few and has not been applied by anyone to the New Testament. 
Close quote. This mathematic of Gefror's consists in developing his whole argument out of a single postulate. Let it be granted to him that all other claimants of the messiahship, Gefror, in defiance of the evidence of Josephus, makes all the leaders of revolt in Palestine claimants of the messiahship, were put to death by the Romans, whereas Jesus was crucified by his own people. It follows that the messiahship of Jesus was not political, but spiritual. He had declared himself to be in a certain sense the longed-for messiah, but in another sense he was not so. His preaching moved in the sphere of Philonian ideas. Although he did not as yet explicitly apply the Logos doctrine, it was implicit in his thought, so that the discourses of the fourth gospel have an essential truth. All messianic conceptions, the kingdom of God, the judgment, the future world, are sublimated into the spiritual region. The resurrection of the dead becomes a present eternal life. The saying of John chapter 5 verse 24, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath eternal life, and cometh not into judgment, but is passed from death into life is the only authentic part of that discourse. The reference which follows to the coming judgment and the resurrection of the dead is a Jewish interpolation. Jesus did not believe that he himself was to rise from the dead. Nevertheless, the resurrection is historic. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Essene order, whose tool Jesus unconsciously was, had bribed the Romans to make the crucifixion of Jesus only a pretense, and to crucify two others with him in order to distract attention from him. After he was taken down from the cross, Joseph removed him to a tomb of his own, which had been hewn out for the purpose in the neighborhood of the cross, and succeeded in resuscitating him. The Christian church grew out of the Essene order, by giving a further development to its ideas, and it is impossible to explain the organization of the church without taking account of the regulations of the order. The work closes with a rhapsody on the church and its development into the papal system. Gefrorer thus works into Venturini's plan a quantity of material drawn from Philo, his first volume would have led one to expect a more original and scientific result. But the author is one of those epileptics of criticism, for whom criticism is not a natural and healthy means of arriving at a result, but who, in consequence of the fits of criticism to which they are subject, and which they even endeavor to intensify, fall into a condition of exhaustion, in which the need for some fixed point becomes so imperative that they create it for themselves by self-suggestion, as they previously did their criticism, and then flatter themselves that they have really found it. This need for a fixed point carried the former rival of Strauss into Catholicism, for which his general history of the church, written between 1841 and 1846, already shows a strong admiration. After the appearance of this work, Gefrorer became professor of history in the University of Freiburg. In 1848, he was active in the German parliament in endeavoring to promote a reunion of the Protestants with the Catholics. 
In 1853, he went over to the Roman Church. His family had already gone over, at Strasbourg, during the Revolutionary period. In the conflict of the Church with the Baden government, he vehemently supported the claims of the Pope. He died in 1861. Incomparably better and more thorough is the attempt to write a life of Jesus embodied in the theological letters to the cultured classes of the German nation. Their writer takes Gefrorer's studies as his starting point, but instead of spiritualizing unjustifiably, he ventures to conceive the Jewish world of thought in which Jesus lived in its simple realism. He was the first to place the eschatology recognized by Strauss and Reimarus in an historical setting, that of Venturini's plan, and to write a life of Jesus entirely governed by the idea of eschatology. The author, Friedrich Wilhelm Gillani, was born in 1807 at Erlingen. His first studies were in theology. His rationalistic views, however, compelled him to abandon the clerical profession. He became librarian at Nuremberg in 1841 and engaged in controversial writing of an anti-Orthodox character, but distinguished himself also by historical work of outstanding merit. A year after the publication of the Theological Letters, which he issued under the pseudonym of Richard von der Alm, he published a collection of The Opinions of Heathen and Christian Writers of the First Christian Centuries About Jesus Christ, in 1864, a work which gives evidence of a remarkable range of reading. In 1855, he removed to Munich in the hope of obtaining a post in the diplomatic service, but in spite of his solid acquirements, he did not succeed. No one would venture to appoint a man of such outspoken anti-ecclesiastical views. He died in 1876. As regards the question of the sources, Gilani occupies very nearly the Tumingen standpoint, except that he holds Matthew to be later than Luke, and Mark to be extracted not from these Gospels in their present form, but from their sources. John is not authentic. The worship offered to Jesus after his death by the Christian community is, according to Gilani, not derived from pure Judaism, but from a Judaism influenced by Oriental religions. The influence of the cult of Mithra, for example, is unmistakable. In it, as in Christianity, we find the virgin birth, the star, the wise men, the cross, and the resurrection. Were it not for the human sacrifice of the Mithra cult, the idea which is operative in the supper of eating and drinking the flesh and blood of the Son of Man would be inexplicable. The whole Eastern world was at that time impregnated with Gnostic ideas, which centered in the revelation of the divine in the human. In this way there arose, for example, a Samaritan Gnosis, independent of the Christian. Christianity itself is a species of Gnosis. In any case, the metaphysical conception of the divine sonship of Jesus is of secondary origin. If he was in any sense the Son of God for the disciples, they can only have thought of this sonship in a Gnostic fashion, and supposed that the highest angel, the Son of God, had taken up his abode in him. John the Baptist had probably come forth from among the Essenes, and he preached a spiritualized kingdom of heaven. 
he held himself to be Elias. Jesus's aims were originally similar. He came forward, quote, in the cause of sound religious teaching for the people, close quote. He made no claim to Davidic descent. That is to be credited to dogmatic theology. Similarly, Papias is wrong in ascribing to Jesus the crude eschatological expectations implied in the saying about the miraculous vine in the messianic kingdom. It is certain, however, that Jesus held himself to be the Messiah and expected the early coming of the kingdom. His teaching is rabbinic. All his ideas have their source in contemporary Judaism, whose world of thought we can reconstruct from the rabbinic writings. For even if these only became fixed at a later period, the thoughts on which they are based were already current in the time of Jesus. Another source of great importance is Justin's Dialogue with the Jew Trypho. The starting point in interpreting the teaching of Jesus is the idea of repentance. In the tractate Sanhedrin, we find, quote, The set time of the Messiah is already here. His coming depends now upon repentance and good works. Rabbi Eliezer says, When the Jews repent, they shall be redeemed. Close quote. The Targum of Jonathan observes on Zechariah chapter 10 verses 3 and 4, quote, The Messiah is already born, but remains in concealment because of the sins of the Hebrews. Close quote. We find the same thoughts put into the mouth of Trypho in Justin. In the same Targum of Jonathan, Isaiah chapter 53 is interpreted with reference to the sufferings of the Messiah. Judaism, therefore, was not unacquainted with the idea of a suffering Messiah. He was not identified, however, with the heavenly Messiah of Daniel. The rabbis distinguished two messiahs, one of Israel and one of Judah. First, the Messiah of the kingdom of Israel denominated the son of Joseph, who was to come from Galilee to suffer death at the hands of the Gentiles in order to make atonement for the sins of the Hebrew nation. Only after that would the Messiah, predicted by Daniel, the son of David of the tribe of Judah, appear in glory upon the clouds of heaven. Finally, he also, after two and sixty weeks of years, should be taken away, since the messianic kingdom, even as conceived by Paul, was only a temporary supernatural condition of the world. The messianic expectation, being directed to supernatural events, had no political character, and one who knew himself to be the Messiah could never dream of using earthly means for the attainment of his ends. He would expect all things to be brought about by the divine intervention. In this respect, Gilani grasps clearly the character of the eschatology of Jesus, more clearly than anyone had ever done before. The role of the Messiah, who, prior to his supernatural manifestation, remains in concealment upon earth, is therefore passive. He who is conscious of a messianic vocation does not seek to found a kingdom among men. He waits with confidence. He issues forth from his passivity with the sole purpose of making atonement by vicarious sufferings for the sins of the people, in order that it may be possible for God to bring about the new condition of things. 
if in spite of the repentance of the people and the occurrence of the signs which pointed to its being at hand the coming of the kingdom should be delayed the man who is conscious of the messianic vocation must by his death compel the intervention of god his vocation in this world is to die End of chapter 12 part 1